Hello and welcome to another Micromaterialism episode where we take a topic in material science and break it down into a bite-sized episode. I'm your host, Ramsey Issa, and today I'm joined by Taylor. How you doing, Ramsey? Pretty good. How's it going? You know, it's a rainy morning here. You can probably hear the birds chirping, but I love getting up to talk about science and material science. How about you, man? Absolutely. Yeah, we actually, uh, it's seven in the morning and we're recording uh, this podcast for you guys. So, you know, we're dedicated. <laughs> it takes a lot to get me out of bed early. In the winter, I've been skiing all winter and that's been something that gets me out of bed. I'm just happy every morning. But as we transition, there's this period between winter where skiing is, you know, the snow's melting and bad, but the trails are too wet for mountain biking. So I had this month where I'm not really sure what to do with myself. We'll just keep recording more episodes for you guys. <laughs> Today, our topic is one that Ramsey suggested. It's one that honestly, I don't know that much about. It's magnetocalorics. So before we dive into that goofy name, let's step back and talk about your refrigerator. So in your house, you've got a refrigerator and you might think to yourself, I love my refrigerator. Why would I want to switch it? You know, it's there, the hard times and good. It's got all my delicious food inside of it. So Ramsey, why are you saying that I need a new refrigerator? Okay, so we're in the process of trying to find new materials that'll actually drive the efficiency up of your current refrigerator. So the idea is to find materials that can drive magnetic refrigeration because the current gas compressed cycle is actually operating at like a 40% efficiency of the Carnot cycle versus what magnetic refrigeration can do for us and drive efficiencies up to 60% uh, of the Carnot cycle. That's a pretty massive difference, man. First off, like, so I, I think I have a pretty good handle on how my refrigerator works, but let's run through it for our listeners. The way that we're able to keep your food cold in your refrigerator is through compression and expansion of gases. So if people aren't familiar with that, maybe you are familiar with using a can of computer cleaner. You ever notice when you take a can of computer cleaner and you spray it, how cold that stuff is coming out? That's because the Joule-Thompson effect, right? So when gases expand, most gases, as they expand, will cool down. They're absorbing energy to do that, okay? There are some exceptions to that rule, which is kind of interesting, like hydrogen and helium. They actually warm up as you expand them, which is pretty wild. They have a positive Joule-Thompson coefficient. But your refrigerator in your home, what it literally is doing is it's compressing gases, right? And then it's expanding them. And it's taking that you know, cooling effect to cool off your food. And then it compresses them outside of your refrigerator. So your room is actually getting warmer as it's rejecting heat outside of the refrigerator into the ambient room. That's kind of the idea behind a current refrigerator. And you've pointed out that these things are not very efficient. Um, I know that they also have some other problems. For one thing, they're noisy. Have you ever been in your kitchen, Ramsey, and noticed how noisy your fridge is? You think it's quiet, but it's always just been there. You can hear these things running, which is not great. Yeah, absolutely. If you just kind of listen in and turn everything else off, you could definitely hear that compressor going off. And it's like, it's a bunch of series of like pumps too. It's not just the fact that the compressor is running. This, the pumps are just cycling this refrigerant throughout your whole fridge to uh, keep that cycle going and cooling uh, to cool down your, your fridge. Well, Lucon uh, did a cool study uh, titled for the fifth assessment report of the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Oh, the IPCC. Actually, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So they actually showed that the energy consumption in a fridge is going to increase from 30% to 37% from 2010 to 2030. 
So wait, hold up. When you say showing... energy consumption, is that like for the entire home, 30% of my energy goes to keep my fridge running? Yeah. Which wow. when you really, yeah. When you think about it, it, it makes sense, right? Because your fridge is the only thing that's running 24 seven versus like your lights or yeah, your yeah. TVs, but it's a, it's a huge energy consumer in, in a, in a home appliance, right? Versus and it's growing, you're saying. Yeah. So it only makes sense to try to drive the efficiency up in that area, right? So in the same way you can cycle a gas compressed system and, and use those thermodynamic properties of a gas to drive refrigeration, you can actually do this with magnets, right? That's so bizarre. I mean, this sounds like science fiction. So you're using magnets. You know, what's weird is your average person might be thinking, well, I've got a fridge magnet. This thing's never hot or cold, right? It's just magnetic. So what on earth are you doing to achieve a heating or cooling with magnets, Ramsey? Okay, good, good question. So we actually use these materials called magnetocaloric materials, right? So breaking down the name, we know it's going to have to do something with magnetism and heat. So these, these magnetocaloric materials are basically, they go through a magnetic state change where they change from a ferromagnet to a paramagnet. Okay. People might be not familiar with that. So let me just back up and explain that a little bit. The magnet sticking to your refrigerator right now is in a ferromagnetic state, but there exists a temperature when magnets will typically switch from a magnetic state to a non-magnetic state. We actually do this for a demo in my class. We take this little piece of magnet, we stick it to an iron wire and we heat that puppy up. And right around the time it starts to glow, all of a sudden that magnet falls off the wire because it switched from magnet, paramagnet to paramagnet. And I think that it's helpful to think about this in an, uh, from the atomic scale. If you zoom way into the atom, you've got the atoms that are responsible for providing a magnetic moment. They have their magnetic dipole. And if you get a big group of these atoms that all decide to point in the same direction, you now have a magnetic domain. It's not the same as a grain boundary. It can be smaller or larger than a grain boundary, typically smaller. And so you have this domain of atoms that are all have their magnetic moments pointing the same direction. Because of that, you end up with a net magnetization of this material. Okay. Now, what can happen is that as you heat this material up, those atoms can absorb energy. And if you, they absorb enough energy, then they have enough to cause so all their magnetic moments point different directions instead of pointing the same direction. And at that point, you've created a paramagnet. So it's not like you got rid of the magnetic moments. Each individual moment still exists. It's just that they're now all pointing different directions. And so there's no net magnetization in your material. They all cancel out with one another. So those are the two states that Ramsey's referring to is paramagnetic state and ferromagnetic state. So what does that have to do with heat, Ramsey? Yes. Uh, great explanation, by the way, Taylor. So when these magnetic domains align with the applied field, you actually have a decrease in magnetic entropy, right? Because it's all aligned with the field. When you remove that magnetization, all those spins and all those magnetic domains that Taylor was talking about are now all randomized. So you need to conserve energy, right? When entropy increases, the temperature of the system will decrease. So by magnetizing and demagnetizing this magnetocaloric material, you'll have temperature changes across the system. I was looking into this because I was not familiar with this technique before today's episode. And they had a cool explanation. It's like, think of it like this. You've got all this entropy that gets released when it goes from a magnet to a paramagnet, right? All of a sudden, the entropy of the, of the magnetic moments goes up right? Because it becomes disordered and entropy is a measure of disorder. So if that goes up, 
something has to pay for that. And what pays for that is that the lattice entropy goes down. Well, what is the lattice entropy? The lattice entropy is just the disorder of the individual atomics, right? Their vibrations. And what is temperature? But a measure of these atomic vibrations, right? So I think that's so cool that by forcing the magnetic moments to go from aligned, so ordered, to disordered, you have to pay for that somehow. And the way that they do it is by taking the vibrating atoms and taking them from being really disordered by vibrating more and making them more ordered by vibrating a little bit less. And in doing so, voila, you just lowered the temperature of your, of your magnetocaloric material. Yes, it's freaking awesome. Pretty rad. Yeah, it's uh, like something out of, like you said, science fiction, right? How can we actually measure the magnetic entropy, right? You can't really go into lab and measure entropy. We don't have a, yeah. a device. Like some sort of disorder sensor. Yeah, this is always the problem with experimental thermodynamics. Entropy is this key quantity, but it's so hard to measure. And you could do things like configurational entropy, like count the, all the different ways to organize something. And I'll see that done in systems, you know, in, in statistical mechanics, you do a lot of that actually. But realistically, when you're doing experimental things, what you have is heat. You can measure heat in and out. And that's not entropy, that's enthalpy. Is there a relationship we can use here? Yes. So using a clever uh, Maxwell relation, we can actually relate the change in entropy to the change in magnetization uh, of the system. So what we can do now to measure this, and we actually did some, I did some work on this with uh, Ram Shashadri in the Materials Research Laboratory at UC Santa Barbara. We'll actually put um, the paper in the show notes. But Levin and company, uh, in an article titled Structural Coupling and Magnetic Tuning in MNCOP, Magnetochlorics for Thermomagnetic Power Generation, uh, you can actually see how we calculated this change in magnetic entropy using uh, what's called a squid. A squid is a superconducting quantum interference device. It's basically a magnometer that measures how magnetized your sample is across a temperature gradient, right? At a certain applied field. Yeah, if you remember our previous episode on superconductors, we were saying, you know, these aren't just like for science fiction, sort of kooky out there ideas. These are being used in science right now. And a squid is a really good example of that. It uses a superconductor to, you know, do its job basically to create these magnetic fields. It gave us the delta SM, which is the change in magnetic entropy of the systems we were looking at. We're actually going to include in the show notes a article from Materials Today, which is an awesome sponsor of ours. They have an article online called Getting Magnetochloric Materials into Good Shape, Cold Working of Lanthium, Iron, Cobalt, and Silicon by Powder and Tubing Process. So what you need in a magnetochloric refrigeration or magnetic refrigeration, you need to also have water pass over your magnetochloric to cool it down. Just uh, in the same way, you need to condense your compressed gas in a fridge. Yeah, the material that actually gets hot and cold as you magnetize and demagnetize it is the magnetocaloric. And so whatever your working fluid is, that's going to be carrying that heat in and out of your system. It has to pass directly over this magnetocaloric, right, to either impart heat or absorb heat. And so I think this is really cool because so many material scientists, we just focus on like the material itself. And sometimes we forget that that material exists in a larger system, which like what's going to happen when water is on the material that you make in your laboratory, right? Is it going to not play nice? Um, so this was actually one of the things that they were addressing in this paper. They said, we need the material. We need it to be able to exchange its heat. But realistically, it's going to need to be protected. It's going to need to be, you know, whatever else. And so they had this super clever idea. 
they take these individual pellets of their uh, pre-alloyed materials, right? And they put them inside of a thin steel tube. So there's like this little jacket of steel around the outside, but the core of this is the magnetocaloric material. And then they cold work it. They, they reduce the diameter. They squeeze on this. And what this has the effect of doing is really compacting and making that magnetocaloric material take up the core really nicely. And then they're able to anneal it to get it to be the correct phase. So it has the magnetocaloric response. It's some funky compound. It's like LA and then these transition metals. There's 13 of those. Anyways, but they can do that in like 10 minutes at 1,000 degrees. So that's really fast annealing times. And then voila, what you end up with at the end is this composite, right? It's a, the core is the magnetocaloric. The jacket protecting it is this stainless steel. And then this is now a wire basically that you can have run through your system. So fluids can run over it. They only touch the steel and yet they can interact with the heat, which passes from the center of that wire into or out of the water, which is just such a cool design, I think. Yeah, such a clever design, and it protects it from water corroding the material. So how did you guys make your materials when you were at UCSB and ROMS Group? We actually used rapid-assisted microwave synthesis, which I think when you worked in, in that lab, you are a little yeah. familiar with Yeah, that? I remember rolling up, on, and we did a previous episode on microwave sintering, so go back and check that out if you haven't heard it. But yeah, I remember rolling up and seeing like five or six microwaves in this giant sort of fume hood closet. When I first walked in, I was like, what on earth are they doing in here? Yeah. yeah, we're cooking. We're cooking materials. Yeah. Uh, but we, yeah, we basically cooked materials. We stuck them in a microwave and like put a crucible with like carbon in it, heated up our magnetochlorics to a certain temperature. And we, we actually had to do studies to try to figure out at what temperature would we get that magnetochloric yep. phase, right? The, the phase that we're interested in. But yeah, you did that. It was pretty cool. And we were actually able to cut down the synthesis time in half to what previous studies have done. Because we didn't have to anneal for like four days. You know, we would microwave yeah. it for two days and then super, just anneal it for cool. two. So, it was- so let me ask Ramsey, this is all seems interesting. And I, I see why academics like it because it's, you know, just cool science. But are, am I really going to be replacing my refrigerator anytime soon with this? What, what's the commercialization front look like here? Uh, good question. Yeah. So BA, BASF actually made a wine cooler out of this. So no way. Yeah, it's functional and it, it does work. I think what what's happening now is this we're just trying to find better materials that undergo a large enough like magnetic entropy change. Cause the larger you have, the more cooling effect you could have on the system. So the, the problem also with trying to discover material, most of these materials are made out of rare yeah, earth. Not, not surprising there. Magnets, right? So many of the best magnets rely on. Even your average listener is probably familiar with like neodymium magnets, right? You know what? It may not be the neodymium, right? In these particular cases, but oftentimes the the best magnetocalorics aren't made of the most sustainable, friendly, low cost available materials. Yeah, like your manganese, cobalt, all that is pretty pricey. So if if they do commercialize this, which I think they might within five to ten years, uh, it'll be pricey. But hopefully, with the discovery of new materials, we don't have to. Spend as much. Yeah, I was reading on a uh, a refrigeration industry website where they were reviewing this, and obviously they're vested in like the older technology, but they were taking a look at some of these new technologies, including magnetic refrigeration. And there's a lot of interest, right? There's a reason why big companies, you know, Toshiba, BASF, other ones, 
have really looked into this, not just tiny startups, because they see the opportunity. They realize that we're not there yet, but are forward enough looking to realize that maybe there's an opportunity here. Because, you know, like you said, if if we're already using 30% of our electricity in the home, and that's going to increase to 37% of our electricity just to keep our food cold, even small savings of efficiency could have pretty dramatic impacts. Yeah. And, you know, they're actually less complicated than your gas compressor system. Yeah, compressors are the worst, man. I wonder what fraction of fridges fail due to the compressor, right? The compressor failing. So here you definitely have fewer moving parts. You still have a transfer fluid, like a working fluid that's going to be involved with the heat exchange. But your magnet, that can have far fewer parts, the, the magnetization. Yeah. You got to also shield that magnet that is magnetizing your sample. So you got to, so there, there's some engineering that still has to go into it to try to really figure it out. But I mean, it's a, it's a great idea. And you don't use CFCs, right? You use water-based coolants now, not like, you know. Yeah. Ref- yeah. Because you're not relying on the CFCs, right? They have thermodynamic properties that allow them as they expand and contract, I'm sure to maximize heat exchange. But if that's not your, where you're getting the heat change, instead you're getting through the magnet, then you don't need those. That's pretty huge. Well, this was a cool episode, man. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. I love that you did some work on this as an undergrad and I look forward to learning a little bit more about it. There's a bunch of materials today, articles that we looked at checking this episode out, not just the one that we cited. We're going to try and make these available. Actually, the publisher is going to make them available for a period of time so you can check them out yourselves, even if you don't have a subscription. So that's pretty rad of them. We appreciate materials today being a sponsor of the show. We think that they do great science and it's obviously a place where great science gets published. So check them out. If you're not familiar with them, you can go to Elsevier.com, learn more about their journals, books, conferences, and all that jazz. We're also grateful to our sponsor, MatMatch. You've heard us before. We're big fans of MatMatch. It's so great. Every time I think about like, what's that new material I would need for this application? Now, by default, I just check it out on MatMatch. You know, we were talking about the steel jacketing and I was looking, all right, do they sell steel in the form of tubing, right? And what's cool is that you can look up for materials in different form factors, in bulk, in powder, in laminates or whatever. So it's a great way to find materials and find them in the format that you might be looking for them. So check them out. They've got loads of materials on there, especially for things like steel. Like it blew my mind just how many different providers are out there, Um, which is great because in the past I sort of knew of one or two and we'd just keep on going to that same well. And a disruptive company like this that's bringing, it's allowing sort of unique fabricators of materials to find their market because it's a marketplace to find all these things. Pretty rad. Um, And best of all, it's free for you to use. So go check it out, mattmatch.com. All right, Ramsey, this was a great episode. Yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in and hopefully we'll see you guys next time. If you've got any questions, shoot us an email. If we got something wrong, shoot us an email, materialism.podcast at gmail.com. And you know what? I would be forever grateful if you would leave us a review on iTunes. iTunes, I don't know what's so magic about that, but man, we got to get some more reviews there. So if you just want to leave us a review and say, Ramsey just brings the hits every time. I just can't wait for him to do an episode because I love it. You know, we would appreciate that. (laughs) And uh, obviously, you know, connect with us on our Instagram page, which is where we're sort of the most active. It's at materialism.podcast. We do giveaways. We interact with you guys. We post just the random stuff that goes into making these episodes. We post what we're doing when we're not making podcasts. And we like to connect with our community. You guys are amazing. We have people that are welders making rockets. We have people in car companies. We have all these amazing people out there. It's fun to see what you do, and it gives us ideas for our next shows. Big thanks to our music providers, Colabyte and Alphabot. You guys do awesome work. You can find them 
on Bandcamp, uh, colbite.bandcamp.com or on Spotify. Okay, we appreciate you being there and we will be back very soon with another full episode. Till then, see you guys next time. 